the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press player, press support. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotographs contributor Brandon Warren. Today we're talking starting pitcher strategy, Minnesota Twins, and preseason bold predictions. Brandon, you're our resident two-start starter analyst, so I want you to tell us and all our listeners, what is your process for determining which two-start starters to recommend on a weekly basis? Well, it kind of boils down to first finding out what guys are even eligible, which is starters who start on Monday or Tuesday. Once I determine which guys I'm looking at, I have to look into ownership numbers because we like to go under 50% ownership. Then I kind of boil down to what matchups I like better. With the Tuesday starters, I have to make sure that the players don't have an off day in the week to come after that Tuesday. Otherwise, they won't get their second start in. So after I boil it down to that and get the ownership numbers in, then I really just figure out the three that I like the best, even if they aren't three very good pitchers or ones that I would normally recommend. And that's kind of how I get to where what everyone sees on Friday afternoon. How much stock do you put into performance numbers to date? I mean, we have a very small sample we're working with. So I feel like it's difficult to determine who the best offenses and who the worst offenses are so far and which pitchers are good enough to recommend with such a small sample size. I mean, do you put more stock into historical numbers or projections or, or Sierra X FIPS or, or actual ERA results? For me with veteran pitchers, I'm, I'm going to give them a little longer of a leash. So if a guy like Jake Westbrook is struggling right now, but tends to get going as the season goes on, I might give him a little more benefit of the doubt than if a rookie or, or even someone like Vance Worley, who actually had a good start yesterday, but had really struggled beforehand. If it's a young guy, I'm going to look for a guy who throws hard, gets strikeouts, ground balls, some kind of projection in his numbers where I think he could turn the corner. Certainly, you get an idea for what offenses are going to strike out more, like the Astros have struck out quite a bit. They've come back to the pack a little bit. But if you got a guy that gets strikeouts and he's coming up against the Astros, you might look for him to turn the corner a little bit. And so there's there's some projection in just about everything. But when it comes to younger guys, I'm a little more guarded just because they might have a quick hook from the manager or they may not get the the seventh inning in a close game where it might be the difference between a win and a no decision. So it's it's kind of my own thought process proprietary to my brain, which is kind of hard to put out here. But it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's really hard to get out much more than that. Yeah, well, what I struggle with, and I'm sure all weekly league managers struggle with, is choosing between your worst pitcher who has two starts and favorable matchups versus one of your better starters that only has one start but a bad matchup. And we could actually use an example from one of the two start starters that you recommended for this week. Patrick Corbin, for example, has a start versus the Giants uh, in San Francisco and a start at home versus the Rockies. And we all know that the Rockies always struggle uh, away from Coors Field. So what if you're choosing between Corbin and somebody like uh, uh, Jeff Samarja who has maybe a mediocre matchup, maybe he's facing Cincinnati or, or the Brewers? How do you choose between those two? 
The biggest thing for me is it comes down to what do you need. I mean, obviously, all leagues are going to be different. They're going to have different stats. Do you need strikeouts? Do you need better rates? Do you need maybe a, a good walks, uh, walks and hits per innings pitched? Do you need wins? It really boils down to that. If you need wins, you got to give the guy that's going to have two cracks at wins. But if you need strikeouts and you've got a guy like Samarja who might rack him up like crazy, you might want him because he might get more strikeouts in one start than a guy – uh, like Jake Westbrook, again, I go back to him because he's kind of one of my, my stalwarts. But in two starts, he might strike out fewer guys than Samarja. So for me, it'll, it depends on where you are in the standings, what your pitcher types are, and then what exactly you need. And then it, it, a lot depends on difference in value. If you're talking about Matt Harvey right now, and then maybe some like fifth-tier kind of guy who is is kind of on the up-and-up but maybe is still down there, then you might take the top-tier guy. But when they're a little closer than that and you get two starts, a lot of times I'm going to take the guy with two starts. Yeah, for me, it's kind of an automatic with those uh, – say Patrick Corbin is on my team and he's my worst pitcher, clearly. If he has two starts and they're favorable matchups and I don't start him, why do I even own him? I mean if I'm not going to start him in a two-star week against the Giants and the Rockies away from cores, then why am I owning this guy? And if I have – Somebody like Jeff Samarja, who I probably never really want to bench because I love Samarja for this year, so maybe he's not the greatest example. I might actually bench a closer who maybe only has six games, maybe against good teams, and just kind of cross my fingers that he doesn't end up with four saves for the week because I don't want to bench another starter. So that's a lot of times what I do. But another one, again, in your recommendations, Wade Davis, you recommended. He actually has... Pretty bad matchups, in my opinion. We all know the Tigers' offense is fantastic. The Indians' offense could be very good. They have a lot of good on-base guys. They have power. So he's a guy who has two starts, but not very good matchups. So that's another one that might be a very difficult decision when you're comparing him to a one-start starter guy who's a better overall pitcher. Yeah, and with Davis, too, he's just kind of having a coming-of-age as a starter this year after – spending the last year in the bullpen. It, it doesn't necessarily look like he can or cannot sustain the spike in strikeouts that he's got so far, but I'm going to give him the chance to do that in my lineups if I'm streaming right now, just because he, he's got two wins and three starts. I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be an asset. He's not out pitching his peripherals by anything too crazy with the exception of strand rate. But then you look at the, the batting average on balls in play, which is up. So He's somewhere in the middle there. I think he's still a viable starter, and he's kind of in that tier of guys that are going to be unowned in a lot of 10- and 12-team leagues. Yeah, Wade Davis, I have to admit, I don't really have a clue about what he's going to do for the rest of the year. The last time he was a starter, his strikeout rate was poor, and this year his strikeout rate is up, uh, almost like he's still a reliever. So I'm not really sure what to make of Wade Davis. So he's a guy that I feel like in a deep league you might as well continue throwing out there but continue to be cautious in a a more shallow league. But I want to move on to somebody uh, last night who might be turning the corner, and that's Tim Lincecum. Brandon, what are your thoughts on Lincecum before the season, and have they evolved at all so far after his first, uh, I think he's uh, had four starts so far this year? Well, it it was obvious last year that there was something not quite right. Obviously, his ERA pretty much doubled from the previous season. So you're looking at a guy who velocity continues to tumble the walks are piling up and it's beginning to be kind of uh well does he become a bullpen guy not at that salary probably not i mean the big the big thing with him too is just the consistency is he 
is he who he's been early in his career? Is he morphing into a new pitcher as he heads down the road towards 30? It's it's so hard to tell with a guy with such unique mechanics and everything about him is kind of unique. What I what I've seen so far this year is is if you take away that first start when he walked seven, he's got like a 3.6 walks per nine, which is pretty much right in line with what he's done in his career. He's starting to get the swinging strikes back. He's starting to look like a bit more of the pitcher he used to be. So either he's learning how to pitch with this decreased velocity or he's just having a good run. Yeah, and I guess you kind of can't take yesterday's results at face value just because it was the Padres. And if you can't pitch well against the Padres, then there's something seriously, seriously wrong. But I own him in a couple of leagues. And uh, preseason I made uh, a bold prediction that he would finish the year with a sub-350 ERA. Obviously, early on, I looked awful. But now I'm looking a bit better because he finally did get his ERA below four. Um, for me, I mean, it really comes down to fastball command because if he can command his fastball and keep his walk rate uh, in check, then even with the decreased velocity, he still has excellent secondary pitches. And it's just a matter of making the, uh, the hitters chase those balls out of the zone. And he's still getting swinging strikes. He's still striking batters out. So it's really that fastball command. And I think, uh, I mean, it's probably going to be a little tougher to buy low now after the start last night. But I still think that he makes a decent buy low. And he's somebody that could be, obviously not vintage Lincecum, but I think he could keep his ERA in the mid-threes for the rest of the year. um, As long as he doesn't have another one of those outings where he walks a, a ton of batters, which, again... You can never be sure about. But I want to move on to uh, the Twins because you are from Minnesota. I believe you're calling it from Minnesota, and you are a Twins fan. Is that correct? Uh, I actually just this year took a job as a Twins beat writer, so I'm definitely, I definitely have a pretty good hand on the pulse. But I am in Minneapolis, and I grew up a Twins fan. I've been a Twins fan for about 20 years now. All right, very good. So we have some expert Twins analysis with us tonight, or today, actually. It's only 1 o'clock. So you were really a, quite a fan of Chris Parmalee. I have to admit I have Chris Parmalee on a couple of teams as well. Uh, but in Minnesota, I mean, that park does, is, is not very friendly for left-handed home run power. So what do you see in Parmalee? I mean, do you really think he can hit more than 20 home runs in that park? It's going to be tough. The biggest thing for him is he's got pretty good line drive stroke. He's got a nice left-handed swing, almost like a Jason Kubel light. He is... From from the eye test, he looks to be passing in right field. He seems to be playing with pretty good range. Obviously, he doesn't chase a whole lot of stuff down. But for a converted first baseman, he's holding his own. For me, off- his offensive profile is that of walks, of patience, and of driving the ball to the gaps. He may not hit those home runs at home. He might have a pretty big home road split. But I think he's a sneaky good guy in right field. And if the Twins can hold off Oswaldo Arcia in right field, Parmley's got a good chance to hold some value in deeper leagues. All right, and let's move on to somebody who's not holding value in any leagues, and that's Aaron Hicks. What do the Twins do about him? They moved him down in the lineup. Uh, Hicks basically caught a break here and bought himself uh, a little more time because Darren Mastriani has an ankle injury and is now on the DL. So, I mean, is it basically Mastriano comes back and Hicks gets demoted, or do you think that he has a longer leash than that? It's really hard to say. He's shown more at the plate in the last uh, three games. In his last ten plate appearances, he's walked five times, doesn't have a hit in that time, but also doesn't have a strikeout in that time. So 
Hicks Hicks' skill set is largely predicated on the walk and speed. Obviously, you can't steal first, and he has he's struggled. He's only got two hits and like forty eight at bats so far. So he's bought himself some time. But Joe Benson's bat is starting to wake up in Triple A. That's the X factor here because the Twins can't run Hicks out there for more than a month hitting like this. I don't believe they have claimed all spring long, full in season that is that they're going to be very, very patient with him. But at some point, you go from patient to passive, and that's not only a knock on the Twins here, but a knock on Hicks' skill set as a whole. In the minors, he's been a very passive hitter rather than an aggressive hitter. And I don't know. I think the leash is, is progressively shortening here. Yeah, I mean, you have to like the long-term outlook. I, I'm, I'm kind of encouraged about his future just because, I mean, that play patience as a rookie, you don't see very often, and that basically translates to a perfect leadoff hitter. In the minors, he did not strike out a whole lot. You know, he, he posted respectable strikeout rates, and he walked a ton. He had some power. He has pretty good speed. So he looks like he's in the making of quite a good leadoff hitter in the future, but he skipped AAA. It's pretty clear based on his batted ball profile, based on all his strikeouts, that he's just not ready for the major leagues. And I'm actually curious about his defense. How... Has he? How is he supposed to be defensively? Because UZR 150 basically tells us that he's been one of the worst defenders in all of baseball so far, and that, funny, that surprises me. The funny thing is, he's absolutely fabulous defensively when he's right, but he's not right right now. Um, basically, I watched him in spring training make just some fantastic plays, putting his head down, getting himself turned around, making great plays in center. He projects or profiles as an excellent defensive center fielder right now. What I see is a tentative center fielder who's not running full bore to everything. He hasn't dove for anything that I've seen yet, especially in the home games that I've been at. I think he's a ten he's a kid playing tentative, and that's dangerous because you got to play full speed because tentative is when you get hurt because you pull up, you pull a hammy or, or anything like that. I think he's playing tentative. He's afraid to go all out because of what's happened to him so far, and it, it's a dangerous precedent to set. So, I mean, is it fair to say that right now, at this very moment, there are really no other alternatives, and it's just a matter of getting Mastriani healthy. And once he gets healthy, do you think if Hicks hasn't turned around since then that he gets demoted, Mastriani is the stopgap center fielder, and then Hicks shows what he can do if he turns it around in AAA. Maybe he'll be back eventually you know, later in the summer. How do you see it playing out? Yeah, I think that's very possible. And again, Benson had three hits the other day, I think, and two hits in a game before that, or vice versa. So again, he's the X factor. You're you're talking about Mastriani, and he's probably on a three-week or a month leash here with his his injury, as we were told by the assistant GM Rob Anthony. It's a pretty serious ankle injury that they're they're kind of worried about it, and it's it's a recurrence of what happened to him when he fouled the ball off in the spring. So. It's, it's hard for the Twins to buy too much time for, for Hicks. I'm sure they had a claim in on Julio Borbon, who ended up getting awarded to the Cubs. But I think the Twins will look for other options, too. They don't have a lot in AAA. they got Cleet Thomas and Brandon Boggs, besides Joe Benson. Uh, either they'll look to the outside, or Benson will have to turn it around and come up. But I don't think Hicks' leash is as long as Mastriani is going to be out. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm looking at Benson's minor league stats, and they don't look so wonderful. I mean, I He's not really the long-term solution here, right? I mean, he's just somebody who's there who might surprise, but it's basically Hicks is the guy long-term. Am I correct? If Benson played to his potential, he would be a long-term guy in the Twins' future, probably in a corner because center is going to be locked down by Hicks. But 
there's just little reason to believe that he's he's recovered from the Hammett injury that cost him a lot of last season. And he says he's healthy. The Twins, I don't think, are convinced that he's healthy. And it's it's pretty disappointing because he had some pretty good steam behind him on the prospect scene about a year or so ago. All right, last question about Hicks. If you're in a keeper league, obviously Hicks's owner can't be too happy right now. Is he a good buy low guy, even acknowledging that he very well could be demoted within the next couple of weeks? If you can stash him in some minor league system or stash him on your bench and it's not going to be a big deal, do you buy low on Aaron Hicks? Definitely if you're in a league that's going to reward his discipline, you're going to get the stolen bases out of him too because this is largely a plotting team that doesn't doesn't have any team speed. Both Hicks and Mastriani are basically the only guys on the team with much speed other than like Florimone or Escobar who don't get on base very often. So the Twins are going to want to infuse some speed and they're going to do it via Hicks at some point, as soon as he gets on base more consistently. So, yes, definitely stash him if you have the opportunity because the skill set's there to be successful. Yeah, I agree. I think that Hicks does show a, a solid fantasy skill set, especially if you're in an on-base league. And he's not ready yet, but at some point he will be ready, so I think he does make a very good buy low. But I wanted to move on. Um, we at Fangraphs and and Rotographs in particular preseason made a whole bunch of bold predictions, and I've mentioned mine several times. And uh, Brandon, you also uh, posted your list uh, before the season started. One of them included Jason Hamill, and and you thought that he might be the best fantasy starter in the American League East. And I have to admit, I was a fan of Hamill. I thought last year was not a fluke. I thought he could repeat. But so far, the results are not very encouraging. So what are your thoughts here? Because I don't see any real reasons for optimism uh, in terms of looking at all of his advanced metrics. No, I don't either. I mean, basically everything's dead. His ground ball rate, his home run rate, his K rate, his, his velocity's down. So his pitching line with, with the FIPS looks bad because his strand rate, I mean, everything is ugly. The bad, batting average balls and plays down. So he's he's not pitching to the the capabilities with which he showed last year and it's I mean the strikeouts are just dead they're gone like three and a half strikeouts fewer per nine innings there's just not a lot of optimism here and you're talking now obviously you got to hedge against this being a bold prediction this is a division that has the reigning Cy Young winner in David Price who's scuffling a little bit right now but Hellickson Moore Dickey Johnson Sabathia and Lester so I I knew that I was going I was shooting for the moon hoping to land in the stars somewhere but uh this one wasn't written in the stars like TBS said in the postseason a couple years ago. <laughs> yeah, it seems so far as if last year never even happened. I mean, I was excited because his velocity spike basically supported the increase in strikeout rate, but now the velocity is back down. Suddenly, all those newfound ground balls, they're gone. And he's allowed uh, fly balls at a 50% rate, which is by far a career high. I mean, he's only in the past allowed a fly ball rate above 40% once. That was back in 2007 with the Devil Rays. So that was a while ago. So I don't know what's going on right now with Jason Hamill. He's not inducing swinging strikes. Uh, his control has been fine, although his uh, first strike percentage is you know the same as it's always been. And... I don't really know what to make of him because I don't know if he makes for a buy low or not just given his sketchy history. And, and last year, it seemed like all the stars aligned, but there was an explanation for it. And and why it's not continuing this year, I don't know. So in an AL-only league, do you you know talk to his owner? Do you consider buying low? Or is he somebody that just don't even bother with 
And if he turns it around, then maybe there's an opportunity, you know, in the next month or so when he has some peripherals to back it up. What do you do? I would track like three start trends for him if I didn't own him just to see if I saw a turnaround that I might want to buy low on. If I'm a if I'm a Hamill owner right now, I probably sit him down. I don't cut him out right until maybe June first if he still looks like this, but I'd probably not start him on his regular turn because I just I don't see it there and because I think the East is gonna be tough. The the Blue Jays have to pick it up eventually at some point and and the Rays aren't going to hit like this all year long either. I don't believe they they may not be the greatest hitting team, but I think you're looking at an AL East that's that's going to come back a little bit. And so I'm, I I look at three start trends, four start trends, and watch and see if the ground balls start coming back, some more swinging strikes because the swinging strikes might precede the the strikeout rate a little bit if uh, if you know, if it doesn't come back all together. I I'm worried it might not because. It still is a blip in the radar of uh, you know five, six, seven, eight year careers. So it, it, you you see one year and you try not to overreact because a pitcher can come of age, but he can also just kind of be a flash in the pan too. Yeah, he's a really tough one because guys that kind of surprised the previous year and then get off to a slow start. You know, there were preseason sleepers, uh, bold predictions, and and you don't really know and you, you question yourself. Well, maybe last year was a fluke, even though I didn't think it was. And so the longer he goes where he's not showing the peripherals of last year, the longer you think that you were just wrong. So I don't think I would try buying low here. Maybe in an AL-only league, depending on how low, maybe I, I I take a shot. But clearly in a shallower mixed league, I wouldn't bother. I would give him uh, some more time to see if last year's magic could return. Otherwise, I would just uh, ignore him. But uh, sticking with the bold prediction theme... You also made one about Dexter Fowler, but it wasn't what some might think. You said that you think that he could sustain an overly high BABIP like Austin Jackson of the 390 variety, but weren't convinced, like I'm sure most others, that he'd maintain uh, the high home run per fly ball rate that he had last year. And of course, he's doing the exact opposite so far this year. (laughs) Yeah, he is basically doing that, but his batting average on balls in place two eleven. So the opposite. You know, I guess the balls out of play don't count, and he's hitting home runs. But the big, the big, the big thing here for me was, I guess I didn't properly couch his home run for fly ball rate. Granted, he he was the tops in line drive rate last year, and and I got burned on that with Cliff Pennington the year before. But some people some people don't learn their lesson, and I'm one of them. So maybe not a 390 batting average on balls in play, but I thought he was a guy that would settle in pretty high. He does seem to be rounding into quite a nice player. I don't know if he'll be a superstar, but I tell you what, the Rockies have done pretty good to find guys like Tulowitzki and Cargo and and now uh, Fowler here. So it's he may not sustain the superstar batting average on balls in play, but if he keeps stroking line drives, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be well out of the, the standard acceptable range. Yeah, well, I mean, just... Staying with uh, Babip right now, he is the epitome of a high Babip guy. I mean, first of all, he plays in a home park that inflates hits, obviously, Coors Field. So that's one thing in his favor. He's also been able to avoid the pop-up. He hits a ton of line drives. He's got power, and he's got speed. So that's the exact description of a guy that can sustain a high batting average on balls and play. And he owns a career 350 batting average on balls in play. So, yeah, that should continue. The power is obviously the biggest question. And I think he might be somebody that the average fly ball plus home run distance might really be helpful for. Because, 
actually it was interesting. Last year, his average distance dropped to closer to the league average. But before that year, the three previous seasons, when his home run per fly ball ratio was in the 5% range, his distance was actually pretty high and well above the league average, which suggested that a home run per fly ball rate spike was imminent. And it happened, but it happened the same year that the distance dropped. So that was kind of weird. But it, it does suggest that he did have the distance and the power to have a, a 10-plus home run per fly ball rate. Obviously not a 41% rate that he's showing right now, but maybe we are seeing – uh, the the home run per fly ball finally match up with previous year's distance. Maybe he can sustain a fifteen percent rate. So is he a sell high guy? I don't think so. I, I I sense him being the kind of guy that can sustain a nice batting line by virtue of hitting extra base hits by the dozen. And I really think he's a guy that in keepers people would have done well to get their hands on. If he stays in Colorado now, if there's any whisper of him leaving Colorado, and I think it's more likely that they'd trade Michael Kadire, or, I mean, Todd Helton's going to probably have to retire here soon. Maybe they move Kadire to first base. You're looking at a guy who really does well for Colorado, and Colorado really does well to have him. I think it's a, it's a good fit there, and it's a good fantasy fit. If if the splits ever got ugly, you could obviously sit him when they're on the road, but that and that might not be ideal. Maybe if you're worried about that, you flip him. But for me, I, I'd play him into the ground. Yeah, you know, I was not very optimistic on Fowler this year, and I pretty much thought he was only worth a couple of bucks in mixed leagues. But I might be coming around just because he has so much upside in so many different areas. He's never received 500 at-bats because he's always dealt with injuries. So you have the upside just purely from a playing time perspective, and that's going to increase his counting stats. I mean, his high right now is 481 at-bats. Imagine if he had 600 at-bats. You extrapolate all the stats, suddenly he's a 20-home run guy, 105 runs, 70 RBIs, and 18 steals or so. He's also a guy who looks fast, he has speed, but he never steals bases. So you think there's got to be some 20-25 steal upside. I mean, he has stolen 27 bases before. And, and he plays in Colorado in a very good lineup. So he's got all kinds of upside in a lot of facets of his game that we just haven't seen yet. So, yeah, he's somebody that I would hesitate to try to sell high. Would I buy high? Probably not because I'd be afraid of, you know, previous performance coming back to haunt me if I bought high. And and I know as soon as I traded for him, he'd probably get injured like he always does. But, yeah, I don't think I would sell high on him. I'd be a little nervous, though, to buy high. So, I mean, we'll see how long this power spike lasts and if he actually could hit 20 home runs. But so far, so good for Fowler and his owners. But I want to move on to a bullpen that's been in flux uh, in St. Louis. And I, I got lucky. I, uh, I wrote an article about Edward Mujica being the next Cardinals closer. And sure enough, my crystal ball was working. And I was right about that. Do you think he holds the job all year? Do you think it'll be Rosenthal or maybe Mitchell Boggs begins his, uh, the role? Well, I think Rosenthal is probably the nastiest of them all. Throws about 98 on the, in the pitch effects. Just dials it up doesn't walk anybody's like a 13 strikeouts per walk rate right now but I like Muhika. I've always thought he was kind of interesting dating back to 2010 when he had a really great season like 12 strikeouts per walk but he managed to give up like 14 home runs in 65 innings pitched so I've always kind of had my eye on him because he's just extremely interesting to watch I think he's Mr. Right now but I think people would do well to dump him sooner rather than later just because I don't think he's Mr. Right for this team long term either 
Mott comes back next year and reclaims the role. I think Boggs, Boggs has looked pretty lousy so far with the walks, but he's still a guy they really like. But Rosenthal kind of seems like the long-term guy. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that Mujica, if he can hold on to the job all season, he's not you know any long-term answer. He's just the guy right now who's pitching the best. The the thing that I question about Rosenthal becoming a closer is, is this is a guy that was a starter. They want to be a starter. He has the ability to go multiple innings. Are they really going to pigeonhole him in the ninth inning to only pitch, you know, one inning a game only when they have the lead? I don't know. I mean, if they're a smart organization, I feel like that would be uh, a silly move to make. Uh, I definitely love him in the bullpen, obviously, but I feel like his long-term role is in the rotation. And and so far, even though it seems more like bad luck than bad pitching, he hasn't really handled the eighth inning that perfectly to make me think they can trust him in the ninth inning yet. Boggs, I don't think, is a closer. He has trouble with lefties. He's a fastball slider guy. He has no outpitch against lefties. If you can't get lefties out, you can't be a closer. So for me, Mujica has no platoon issues. He can get lefties and righties out. He's always been solid. Not a high strikeout guy. Not a hard thrower. But he's good enough to get the job done. So, I mean, unless he has several bad outings where he blows saves in a row, I see no reason why he would lose the job. So, I mean, my money's on Mujica holding the job all season. And so I, I, I can't imagine that he's available in any leagues. But I just don't see Trevor Rosenthal getting the job because I just think it would be silly to pigeonhole him into a, a one-inning role all season. Do you disagree with that? Uh, yeah, it, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing at all because that would kind of be a, like a John Papelbon situation with the Red Sox when they basically made him into a closer when he was quite a good starting pitching prospect. And I don't know that that was a mistake or maybe it was, but I think I think we're away we're we're trending away from a game where teams put that premier value on late inning relievers like they did maybe the last few seasons. I think I think what we'll find yeah maybe is Rosenthal maybe spends this year in the bullpen. And then either Jake Westbrook moves on, or Wainwright, I think, is a free agent. Or no, excuse me, he signed an extension. But but Westbrook's 35. You, you, you might need that rotation spot eventually for Rosenthal. Maybe he's just biding his time, but he can help the team in the bullpen right now. And I think I think he's probably uh, in, a, in the long-term plans as a starter, and, and he's gonna should be a darn good one based on a lot of indications. But, you know, maybe he's ready to help the team now, and maybe it is best that he pitches the seventh one day, the eighth the next day, and wherever they need him is kind of a, a satellite option there. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that he's not the best reliever option in that bullpen, or he'll prove to be. I just think that, given his situation, it might not be <clears throat> it might not be the best idea to make him the closer. But anyway, that's going to do it for today. Join us again on Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Brandon Warren, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.